All right, turn with me, if you would, please, to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to resume uh, where we've been going through uh, the book of Hebrews. It's good to be together today in God's house with God's people in this place that we gather to worship in his name. And uh, we want to continue to think about uh, what his word teaches us. And so turn with me there. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses uh, 26 and uh, through the end of chapter number 10. Or follow along on your device, but uh, I always encourage you to engage with the scripture passage, because it's what we'll be talking about. All right, for if we sin willfully, the scripture says, after we have, sorry, received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy? Will he, he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Father, we're grateful for the word of God. We're grateful for even the challenges uh, and the difficult passages that we read that you give them to us because you love us and you want us to understand you in your heart and ways. And so we pray that you'll just help us and speak to us by your spirit and by your word. Help me, God, as I proclaim uh, your word today, and I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. The, um, the scripture passage today, we've a couple of times seen the scripture in Hebrews talk about apostasy. Apostasy, that's the theme here again today. The idea is, is of someone departing from the faith that they formerly proclaimed. And so in Hebrews there are warnings for which uh, a wise person will be grateful, will look at those things and say, that came from the heart of a loving God. That came from someone who... Uh, cared about me so deeply that they told me the truth. We talked about that in Bible study this morning. I remember once uh, we I pastored a little church in North Carolina, almost in Virginia, when I was in seminary. And on the way out there, this was before uh, GPS, okay? Maybe tom-toms were around. I don't think so. So uh, you would print directions off or follow a, uh, what do they call those things? An atlas, okay? Something like that. We were on our way out to this uh, church. I only knew one way to get there, 
And on the way, the, uh, we found out that a bridge was out. And there was a sign there warning us. So we had to regroup and figure out how to still get to this church another way. But I was grateful that someone had put a sign out that said, hey, the bridge is out ahead. If you keep going, you're going to end up in a, a river. You know? So the Bible sometimes contains warnings that are beneficial to us. And this morning is a case just like that. I read a story this past week on a religious news service and uh, the uh, title of it pertained to a gentleman who is a professor at University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. He uh, runs a website that uh, debunks Christian myths, and the story was about how people subscribe to his website. His name's Bart Ehrman. I'm not afraid to say it because he runs a public website. You can go find it yourself. But his website is dedicated to what he calls debunking Christian myths. He was himself a uh, former uh, confessing follower of Christ, an Episcopalian, now a professor at a uh, a college, a university. And he um, has made enough money through subscriptions to that or books that he's written that it said he'd given away about $2 million to charity, which... That part of it is commendable, but the part of it that is about uh, challenging historic ideas or biblical ideas and, you know, saying basically I'm debunking them is not commendable at all. And when I read some of the ideas that he debunks, it's textual variants in Scripture, things that uh, most people who are first-year Bible students have already, you know, got information about or the things that we would uh, teach people, I would from the pulpit, or you know, some of it was about historical speculation that we may talk about during nativity and that kind of thing. But it's not something that's hidden, and it uh, the kind of things that he debunks as myths are the sort of things that probably we would look at and say, well, that helped me to have some uh, more historical, uh, you know, foundation for the things that I I believe, and. You know, I just thought about that, that what he is practicing is the Bible definition of apostasy. A professor of Christianity who at a point in their life says, I don't believe that that's accurate or true anymore. I quit on it. Not only in this case did the person quit on it, but now they basically um, make sport of, you know, what they used to believe. So as I've read through Hebrews, a challenging question has come to mind for me, and that is this. Basically, I believe that uh, the Scripture teaches that those who come to God, who authentically experience God, and the Spirit of God comes to take up residence in them, that that person God will cause to persevere. That's what uh, most conservative Christian groups have believed historically is that We won't fall away because God causes us to persevere. That God is the agent, the person who keeps us. I like how it says it in the book of 1 Peter. It says we're kept by the power of God. The word kept there means garrisoned about, protected. That God holds us. You remember how Jesus put it. He says, whoever comes to me 
He says, I hold them in my hand. Nobody can snatch them away from me. My Father, he says, is greater than all. And so we, we believe that we persevere because God causes us to persevere, that God keeps us himself when we are authentically uh, transformed, regenerate, born again. Those are all the Bible ideas that we see. So why then does the author of Hebrews spend so much energy, and he does over and over again with these warnings that say, Hold on, keep your confidence. Don't cast aside your confidence, which has great reward. If it's true on the one hand that God keeps us, why does he keep saying that? Why, do, why would he say don't do something you can't do anyway? So I think about why he would do that. And here's what I conclude myself is that congregations, you know, we talk about what a church is and, and what it's not. A, a church is a community, a congregation of people. I said the house of God earlier. Well, it is in the sense that the people of God gather in this building, in this location, you know, and so in that respect, we would say, oh, yeah, but the people of God really are a community of faith. It's a group of people who have committed themselves to follow uh, Jesus together, and yet uh, a people, a community is comprised of all kinds of uh, human beings at different stages of belief. And so here's what I think the writer in Hebrews does. I think he gives us these uh, warnings to, to say to the person who has experienced, we, we saw in uh, chapter 6 that he talked about that we've tasted, that we've, he, he talks about being illuminated. In other words, we've seen the light, we've been around it, we've heard the vocabulary of faith, but I think he writes to a person who hasn't internalized it. And he says to that person, look, don't cast this aside. This is of too great importance to simply set it, set it aside. And so Hebrews constantly is re, uh, warning a person that might have deep familiar, familiarity with the teachings about Jesus but, uh, and has this intimate exposure he perhaps has sat in worship service after worship service, like I had up until a point when I became a, a follower of Christ at age 24. I'd been to lots of religious services. I've been to lots of Sunday schools and vacation Bible schools and uh, lots of church worship services. But my life didn't change until the reality of who Christ was intersected with my need, and I surrendered and yielded. And I think what he's saying is that when we think about community, it's composed sometimes of people who are still in the process of repentance and of coming to faith in Christ. And he would say to a person, the writer, the Holy Spirit through Scripture would say, hold on, don't cast aside your confidence. And so as we look at this passage of Scripture together today, I think there's one single warning. But it, it takes on these uh, three different forms as we look at the passage together. And the first one is in this idea of honoring Jesus. Because what, uh, look at verse 26 there. It says, if we sin willful, willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That's somber, right? When you read that. When it says, if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there's no longer a sacrifice for sins. If you misread that, what you would hear it 
saying is that a believer who sins willfully after they've received the gospel and trusted Christ, if you sin willfully, then there's no other sacrifice for you. In other words, you've, you've blown it. The problem with that is that the person that you look at in the mirror after your baptism and your confession of faith in Christ has most certainly sinned willfully. So what's the scripture really trying to say to us here? The willful sin that he has in mind, and we know because of the context and the repetition, is basically saying to us that there's no other sacrifice or way to Christ. So the person that says, goodbye, Jesus, I'm putting this whole system in my rearview mirror, there's not another way of salvation out there for that person. There's no other way. It's exactly what Jesus himself said when he said, I am the way, the truth, the life. And he says, no one can come to the Father except through me. And it's the same thing that the apostles taught when they said, nor is there salvation in any other. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So I don't think the writer here is talking about or the Holy Spirit in Scripture is saying to us that a a person can sin a certain kind of sin, that in their disposition they had made up their mind to do it and then did it, and then there's no salvation for them anymore because it was willful. What it's saying is willful rejection of Jesus leaves for you no other option for salvation. There's no other option. And it is the big idea that you find in Hebrews. So this is reinforced by Paul in another place. Here's what he says in the book of Galatians. But suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ, and then we're found guilty because we have abandoned the law. Would that mean Christ has led us into sin? Absolutely not, he says. Rather, I'm a sinner if I rebuild the old system of law I already tore down. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. Why? Because I saw that my attempts at perfection were not aligned. So uh, my attempt at perfection didn't answer to the reality of my personal history. I don't know why this seems so shocking. You guys live with yourself, right? I mean, I live with myself. And that's all he's saying is that any person who lives with their self knows that their self-effort is not going to get it done. There, you don't have a perfect record to offer to God. And that was the, the law. The law said basically do and live. But the problem was we didn't do. And therefore what faced us was spiritual alienation and death. So that's what the writer, the apostle, so at a point what I did is decided I would stop trying to use moralism as a way to find life. Stop that puts us in relationship with God. gospel says we needed rescue we needed redemption 
We sing about the blood of Christ. Why was his, his blood shed? To cleanse away our transgressions. To cleanse away our sins. To, to take away the record and the account that was contrary to us. That's the, you know, the idea of what blood represents in the Bible. Without shedding the blood, we saw earlier in the book of Hebrews, there's no forgiveness of sins. Without shedding of blood, there's no remission, no, no cleansing, no forgiveness. And so the scripture says, so my old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, through me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He says that's the d- distinction, the difference that a person who has come to understand the good news about Christ versus, and we've, we're talking about this in Hebrews, this pattern, the old covenant, which was a shadow which was an imperfect representation of the goodness that God would bring in Jesus. When Jesus came and fully and finally uh, did for us what all those things were suggesting. They were suggesting, look, you need a sacrifice. But it was re- repetitive over and over and over again in that old system. It would, it would occur until Jesus came and was the final answer for the problem of our sin and our alienation from God. So the Apostle Paul says, I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there is no need for Christ to die. That's really what this is saying. If we set aside the grace that came to us in Jesus, there is no alternative pathway to God. There's not another approach that a person could make. And and then... The scripture shows us that self-salvation is a damnable lie. It is the idea that I can do this. I can do this. That's an affront to God. And, and of course, we get caught up in that concept at times and, you know, our performance. And it's not unimportant because it's a testimony and a witness about what the grace of God is doing. But it's not an alternative for God's grace and how he works in a human being to bring us to himself, to reconcile him, to uh, us to himself. As the scripture says that th- that was God's purpose in Christ's coming, was reconciliation. To take the issue that alienated and caused separation and division between us and God out of the way in the cross of Jesus Christ. So there's, there's no other pathway to to God except through Christ. Isaiah, even in the Old Testament, says, whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way. Walk in it. It's singular. There, uh, in English, they teach us about uh, definite articles, and a definite, uh, definite article is T-H-E. That's a definite article. It means this is true, excluding everything else. I am the way. This is the way. Jesus says, there aren't many ways. There's just this one. Otherwise, as the scripture showed us in in the book of Galatians, explain the cross of Christ. Explain why God would uh, allow his son to be born in the world, a human being, to die on a cross. Why would God go through that if there were multiple approaches that a person might take to him? 
So the scripture is trying to clarify for us in the shape of a warning that the writer is giving here the importance of holding on to this reality, coming into that reality, because I think this is very much a gospel passage. Apart from Jesus, we're left on our own to face God's terrible. Look at the things it says in this passage. It says there's nothing ahead of a person who sets aside this uh, sacrifice of Christ except for, look at verse 27, a fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. These are the images and the ideas that God chose and that God revealed to us. Terrible, consuming judgment. Why is it so terrible? Because it's avoidable, that's why. We came to a crossroads, that's what the warning is, and we went the wrong way. The writer's saying, look, when you come to this particular intersection and and you hear, like, this is the way that life is, we take that direction. And the Bible says when we don't, all that's ahead of us is this idea of alienation from God, the idea of judgment. And we, we think about the, what's the goodness of God. The goodness of God is that he received that judgment on himself for you and for me. That's his goodness. That's his grace and his love for us and his kindness exhibited in his own life here as a, a person in the days of his flesh as we see in Hebrews. So we, we saw God at that intersection as an adversary when God had already shown up as a friend. That's why it talks this way. He's already shown up for you as a friend. But, but the person who says no, they view him as an adversary, a contender for their right to lead their own life. And it goes on and talks about the law of Moses here in verse 28 and how the, it gives an illustration. And basically, in the, when the people of God left the land of Egypt, and they came to uh, the wilderness after they had crossed through the Red Sea. And God had miraculously delivered them through the plagues and then through, through the Red Sea. And they came into that, that wilderness. They were the people of God. That's who this was written to. And God had given them a system that accentuated his holiness. And the priest outfitted The thing that was written on it was holiness to the Lord. God is accentuating his holiness. And and the the issue when it talks here about someone dying on the evidence of witnesses was idolatry. Where these people had said, we renounce this system that says there's one God and we're under him. And we're going to choose all of the multitude of ways around them that the people were all often coming into conflict with an idolatry. That's what it's talking about. So a person that says adamantly, I reject this, I refuse, was under the penalty of physical death. That's what the reality was historically that God had given to them. So the next... Comparison goes on to the gospel. Look in verse 29 and following. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose he'll be thought worthy? Who treats the blood of the covenant by which he was 
sanctified a common thing, who tramples the Son of God underfoot, who insults the Spirit of grace. That's just piling on adjectives and descriptions. Is the same way of saying this person took the goodness of God and the gospel of Christ and said no. Said no. He says, well, what do you think is ahead of a person in that situation? The, the scripture, this is the one that I think frames what those illustrations are saying perfectly. It, it, what does it say there? Don't fear the one who uh, can kill the body but can't kill the soul. But rather fear him who was able to destroy both soul and body in hell. This is Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And, and here it's saying, okay, the Mosaic law put a person under the sentence of physical death, but there's a different kind of death that the Bible talks about. And that kind of death is, is alienation in hell. And, and Jesus talked about Gehenna, and Jesus talked about the, the, there being a life after this life, and that he came to rescue us out of. And so that's why the scripture says, here, this illustration that we have of how much worse do you suppose the, the judgment will be for someone who sets aside the hope that, that's there in the good news of Jesus Christ. It's a warning. And it's being shouted over and over again in the pages of uh, Hebrews. So we, it's repeated again and again, this idea that, listen, take heed, pay attention. We saw it way back in chapter 4 and then repeated again in various places and now again. And so the Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God because it is exactly at that point that hope is forfeited. There was an opportunity for hope. It was now. That's why, again, in uh, the book of 2 Corinthians, the scripture says for uh, in an acceptable time, I've heard you. And in the day of salvation, I've helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The wise person goes, there's a remedy, there's, there's peace, there's hope, there's opportunity in this moment. And doesn't cast aside that precious reality. And that's what this the warning is and why it's so heavy when you read through this passage. It is heavy. And he's talking to a group of people who are experiencing persecution, so uh, that's why it changes the tone there or the idea and, or emphasis in verse 32. And it reminds them, hey, when you started following Christ, I felt like for us there was a honeymoon period. Like my, when Frankie, it was literally our honeymoon because we just got married. But it was also like a spiritual sort of honeymoon. We were in this uh, church that, you know, people were being baptized all the time. We were seeing the tremendous growth. And we were just surrounded by people that helped us so much in that uh, congregation. It felt like that. But it, it, these people were being, they were in a situation where to say yes to Jesus was often to say goodbye to their family. Their family because they, they were coming out of Judaism in almost any system where there's, you know, adamant belief. Well, they were leaving that to say yes to Jesus. So some of them were losing employment. Some of them were losing family. Some of them were losing freedom. 
because they ended up incarcerated. Some of them were losing their lives. And that's what he's saying to them here when he talks about think back on what it was like. He says, you remember, don't you, that at the beginning of your journey it was characterized by suffering? It was characterized by this idea that uh, the path that you had uh, chosen was putting you at odds with people around you ostracized is the word you you remember what it felt like to be ostracized in the beginning that was you remember what it felt like to be insulted they thought you were an idiot because you had chosen to follow Christ he's asking the this audience these people who have committed to follow Christ verbally hopefully in their wills it was a severe trial and we, we've been talking about in our Bible study time living a distinct life. And it very well may attract hostile opposition. I, re, I remember when I came to faith in Christ, I worked in a, wel, a welding fab shop. And everybody in there partied like 90% of the people that worked there smoked pot all the time. One guy sold pot out of his locker and it was, you know, just that kind of culture, kind of a construction culture. <laughs> and and I, I left work on a Friday with one idea in my mind. And dealing all this time with conviction and the idea that my life wasn't, you know, where it needed to be. And my mom shared the gospel with me and I came to receive Christ as my Savior, surrendered, said yes. And so I went back to work Monday, a different person. Like the scripture we saw says, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation, old things pass away, all things become new. I didn't go back to work a perfect person, far from it. But I went back to work a different person. The Spirit of God had come to live in in me, and my uh, view of things was different. Guess who didn't change? All the people that I went to work with. You know, most of them were still, you know, living the same. And, and to be honest, you know, for a little while, it was a, still a temptation and a pull to me. But uh, across time, you, you know, I began to uh, live my faith out among those people. And I, it was healthy for me sometimes for those people who knew me uh, a completely different way to say, hey, I thought you were a Christian, you know. If something questionable came out of my mind, I, what I found was that by publicly professing my faith among those people that knew me, there was a certain accountability that began to come into play. But there was also times when it was difficult. And, and I was an oddball, an outsider to people I'd been an insider with. And a friend of mine that worked with me named Walter who also went to church with me, was one of the few Christians that worked in that place with me, pointed out to me in the scriptures, uh, in First or Second Peter, where it says, um, they think it's strange that you don't run with them to the same excess of dissipation. That's exactly what the scripture says, and I know that's, uh, yeah, but basically what it says is they just, they expect you to keep doing the things that you were doing. It's surprising that you're not doing the things that you did before, and it puts you at, at odds with them, which is true. That's what happens. If we go against the grain, we get splinters. If we're not going with the flow, we should expect turbulence and resistance. 
It'll be a struggle. And that's what he said to those people. Do you remember what it was like when you came to faith in Christ and you were doing something different than everybody around you was doing? He's like, it's not always going to be a piece of cake. I remember going to uh, on vacation at the beach one time and taking a bike ride. And uh, you, you, if you've ever ridden a bike on the beach, it's like one way. The way I started out was like, whew, wind at my back. It was a piece of cake, you know. But when I turned around down there a long ways and started pedaling back, not so much. You got the wind in your face and you, you can feel it. That it's difficult. And, and really I think what the scripture shows us is if we're trying to live in the stream in the way that uh, Christ would have us, sometimes we're going to go opposite of everybody else. If you've ever like let out in a big crowded place and you needed to go the opposite direction of the way that everybody else was going, that's what it feels like sometimes. Like everybody's going that way. I'm trying to go this way. So he reminds them, look, this has consistently been the experience that you had and you shouldn't uh, give up now because it's probably going to continue to be that way. There's meaning and suffering that he's trying to point out to them and, and that, you know, we live in the West where what we experience people will say is soft persecution, which is true. You're not going to get arrested for being here today, probably. I mean, I doubt you will unless you do something dumb when you leave here, something like that. But for coming here, nobody's going to drag you off and arrest you. you know, I had uh, I went to Turkey where a friend was serving as a, a missionary, and we went to almost to Syria. He lived like very close to where Turkey becomes Syria. And there are places in Turkey where uh, it's more dangerous to be very verbal about your faith in Christ. And we met this one guy who was serving a church there who the authorities would come and bring a camera and film all the people that were in the building and film that guy and they harassed him because it's not illegal to be a Christian in Turkey, but it's certainly discouraged. There are only about 2,500 Christians in that whole country at that time but we don't experience that we experience soft persecution which may mean that our feelings get hurt sometimes or we feel odd but their stuff was next level in the first century that we've already talked about Jesus said if the world hates you know that it hated me before it hated you so what do we expect if like if Jesus experienced hostile opposition, he'd say Here's a question. I wonder if there's anything about us that would attract opposition. Or is our fate so benign that people don't bother? Are we so friendly with the world that we hardly merit a meh? He caused them to remember that their journey had been characterized by pressure to conform and leave behind their faith in Christ from the very first. And there always will be some sense of being out of step with the world as long as we're trying to be faithful to Christ. And we, and we shouldn't mistake complications we invite by failing to be like Christ with persecution. You remember how that Peter uh, said, let none of you suffer as an evildoer. He says, that's not persecution. 
being at odds with the world sometimes means being at odds with myself. The uh, writer says in another place in the Bible that uh, it talks about abstain from fleshly lust, it says, which war against the soul. Abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. So sometimes it's not even issues outside me, it's what's in me that is a struggle in this world. But he, he says, listen, God doesn't waste difficult things. That there's a purpose in the difficulty that we face. And he, it really, he's just saying, keep on, hold on, hold fast, as, he's, as the scripture said in other places. And then the last part of this passage encourages us, challenges us to keep walking by faith. In uh, verse 35, therefore do not cast away your confidence which has great reward. For you have need of endurance so that after you've done the will of God you may receive the promise. And so we need perseverance. Don't throw away your, your steadfast confession of faith in Christ which is the constant theme. I think here in the the big picture with the book of Hebrews. Because perseverance has great reward, the Bible says. Doesn't always feel like it in the moment. I don't think that this means that authentic believers won't wrestle with questions that affect their faith at times. If it does, I struggle with questions that affect my faith at times. When I think about how to be a follower of Christ and I think about the tenets of my belief, there are times I struggle with doubt. And the scripture, I don't think, is saying here, look, you're not going to struggle with doubt sometimes. We'll be confused and bewildered and disappointed and depleted at times. So what I think it's saying is like in the middle of all that, don't give up. You need endurance. Stick with itness. That's not even a word. But it's what we need. Stick with itness. Perseverance. The capacity to see through our temporary trials and difficulty and be a follower of Christ and finish the race. It's a critical daily reminder for all of us. So the reward comes, the scripture here says, after you have done the will of God. Which reminds us, faith isn't just a biblical data. Sometimes we think, well that's faith, I know all this stuff. No, it says what? After you have done the will of God. In other words, it's commitment, it's practice. So faith isn't just knowing things. It's like, okay, I'm going to go out from here with other people and practice the the way of Christ. So it shows up in faithfulness and worship and work and witness and godliness. In the Bible... What we understand about perseverance is that God is the most significant agent in it. I like this passage uh, here as well. This is the benediction in the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. That already starts out great, doesn't it? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. So that's why I said in the beginning when we think about why do we keep being warned not to apostatize when God keeps us anyway. God does keep us. But a community is composed of all kinds of people. And to that person that chooses Christ, he comes to live in us and causes us to persevere. That's what I believe. 
says, To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. So the warnings in Hebrews are intended essentially to disturb us into the actions of serious self-reflection with the goal of causing you to have assurance. God wants us to have assurance. So interspersed in this letter are times where God kind of grabs us by the lapel, shakes us a little bit, and speaks hard truths to us. I, I, you know, I told someone else, like, sometimes when I'm dealing with really difficult passages of, of Scripture, I call smart people, people that I think are probably smarter than me. I've got a couple of friends that I'll reach out to and... and thinking about that question. Okay, if, if it's true that God will cause that person that really is authentically converted to persevere, why these warnings? And one friend, which he's not, you know, he's telling me things lots of other people have, have thought and pulled and read uh, or taught, is like, it's kind of like when you're, you, if you have a little kid, when our children were little and you went out in public, what'd you do? You held on to them. Or if you lived in a neighborhood like we do, you'd say, hey, stay away from the street. Don't get out there and play in traffic. So the warnings were intended to serve as sort of some safeguards. And so God gives us those warnings to help us to have maybe a healthy buffer and a reminder. I don't know for sure that that's the idea. I think for sure... That what we can see in the scripture is that there are expressions of serious concern that are constantly being brought up to show us that there's no other way to experience forgiveness and grace and to be under God's mercy and kindness except through Jesus Christ. And that spurning his free offer of uh, gift, his free offer of grace, that gift is the most dangerous thing that anybody could do. That's what it says to us. There's nothing more lethal in the final analysis than saying, I don't believe that. I'm not committed to Christ. I'm going to do this my own way. We're going to have a time now of commitment as the musicians are uh, come up. And I want to pray for us. And during the time of uh, commitment they have, this is an opportunity for response to you to pray for yourself or someone else or... If, uh, as you've listened today, this registers for you as a warning and not an, uh, a kind of an assurance, then the thing to do with that is to accept the warning as being uh, kindness that God is showing you to help you to uh, trust in his son, the son of his love. Father, we thank you for the scripture, even at times where we read it and it uh, strikes us as being very severe. God, we know that it's a, it's a severe grace. It's a goodness that has come to you out of your heart as a father and your love for us. The love that was so huge that you yourself would assume the form of a human and come here and take upon yourself our punishment to bring your kindness and your grace and goodness to us. And so we pray today that we'll receive that gift if uh, anyone hasn't opened their life up to just say yes and surrender their will to you. God, I pray that you'll give them the, that gift of repentance 
And I pray, Father, that you'll keep using these uh, scriptures in our lives to cause us to be more and more like Christ and to follow you closely. And we love you and pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing?